look for the good, you know, despite the fact that there's a lot that's scary out there. We're still okay. I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business, it's about contribution, it's about meaning. That is what we seek That is what we truly want, and you absolutely are here to serve the world, and I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you, and every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I am so excited because Jason Mraz is here today. He is not only someone who is so talented, but he is such a genuine good soul. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview. He's such a special person. I think you will feel so enlightened just to hear the way he sees the world and the way he shows up. So encouraging so inspiring. Before I dive in, I just want to say thank you so much for all your notes, for all the love. It was my birthday this past weekend, June 19th, and I just had the best day. And I want to give a huge shout out to my husband, not only because it was Father's Day and he's such a great father, but because he really showed up for me this birthday. He celebrated me and he really nailed it in terms of my love language, which is words, right? Like you can tell I like words. I'm a very verbal person. He wrote me 50 notes to describe how he loves me and what he sees in me. And I was overwhelmed with a feeling of unconditional love. I was crying so hard and it's good because it sort of forced me to look at my own demons when it comes to how much I believe I'm really worthy of receiving And I could feel how much he was giving and I could feel myself wanting to say, it's okay, or no, you didn't have to do that. And I just, I let it come in and then I I felt how hard it was to just sit and receive it. And it was so beautiful and so healing. And so I'm so grateful to him because marriage for me has never been just like this linear, like nonstop, perfect thing. And I'm constantly working on really showing up in my relationship the same way I do in my work, where I look for the good, as Jason Mraz is going to talk about today. I look for the good and find more good. I can do that in so many aspects of my life, and I want to continue to just really see the good and look for the evidence of that, as opposed to what I sometimes do, being a child of divorce, being a child who saw my parents fight nonstop and then break up is I'm constantly looking for the shoe to drop. And so it was just such a beautiful birthday. And in no small part, because of all of you, I feel so grateful that you're in my life. And I loved what you sent me. So thank you, because it did not go unnoticed. And I really appreciate it. Now let's get into today's episode. 
I can't tell you what a treat, what a pleasure it is to have Jason Mraz here. He is a Grammy award-winning multi-platinum artist, singer, songwriter, and musician. I'm sure most of you have heard his incredible songs like I'm Yours, or maybe you have one of his many albums like Waiting for My Rocket to Come, Mr. A to Z, We Sing, We Dance, We Steal Things, Love is a Four-Letter Word, and he just released his newest album, Look for the Good, and it came out on my birthday just a couple days ago. It's incredible what he's been up to, and we're going to talk about everything that's going on with him and what inspired his newest album. I really want you guys to go check it out. We'll have links to it in the show notes. Jason is an honoree of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's on the board of ASCAP, and he has sold millions of records, which is not surprising because his music is exceptional. He's also an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. In 2011, he created the Jason Mraz Foundation to support inclusive arts education and the advancement of equality, and it has donated over a million dollars to organizations that are for that mission. Plus, he has Mraz Family Farms, which is an agricultural co-op that's committed to peace in the world through organic, regenerative agriculture, fair trade, and kind words. It's all so in line with who he is and what he stands for. Everything about him is really part of his mission, his life's work. It's all really about being here, being present, and making the world a more beautiful, whole, lovelier place for all of us. He is a gift, and he is here to share his goodness and generosity with you. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only, incredibly kind, incredibly good, Jason Mraz. Hi, Jason. Hi. I'm so happy that you're here. I was telling my sister this morning, I said, you know why I'm so intimidated by him? I said, it's not that he's so special and his music is so good. I said, it's... He's kindness personified. I, wow. I'm flattered and I'm touched to be recognized that way. But right. I'm, I'm human as well, you know, so I, I still get grumpy and I still get stressed out. But by the time it gets to the music or what, what happens on stage or in the world, I hopefully have worked out all of those kinks and those grumpy parts. But I tell you, music is the thing that keeps me blessed. And I think I'm too blessed to be stressed. So. <laughs> well, all of that is yeah. just so like you to say, see, that was a really humble response, but that, that is what makes it almost so heartbreakingly beautiful because obviously it takes courage to see the good, which is so much a part of your record now and so much a part mm -hmm. of you. But my first question is how early in your life did you have this little feeling like, I think I want to be doing music when I grow up, or did you not know that till later? No, it was pretty early. When I was seven years old in second grade, mm -hmm. we were basically introduced to our first music class. And I had a piano in my home and my mom played the piano and would set me at the piano at a very young age and show me how to play chords and how to play it percussively and make some noise on it, which I always loved. And then by second grade, when we had music class at school, I felt, hey, I'm familiar with this music thing. I, I like this. And then my music teacher asked me to sing something by myself in the room in front of all my classmates. And it was Silent Night. It was, it was a Christmas song. Oh, yeah. and, and she loved it and went and got another teacher 
or others from the school wow. and just listen to this. Wow. And it gave me this feeling of I'm being seen and heard. Yeah. How special. And I didn't know then that I would make a career out of it, but that was definitely the start. I knew it was something I loved. I wanted to keep doing it. Wanted to keep doing it. And by the time I was in high school, you know, I continued to take music electives. When there was career day and that opportunity to kind of figure out what you want to do in college, I was so confused that nobody else wanted to go in the entertainment industry. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed everybody would want to do that yeah, because yeah. it seems like a circus. But yeah, I knew pretty early on and it just, everything just kept lining up that I had the opportunity to continue to pursue that dream. You know, such as having music in public schools, for example, that's right. the opportunity that that yeah. makes it easy for a kid like me to get the tools I need to, to keep moving forward. Yeah. And awesome. by eighth grade, when I started to finally have feelings for girls, <laughs> I started to write poetry that could be aligned with music. And in fact, the first song I feel like I wrote, the first real like, oh yeah, this is something. It was, I took an instrumental cassette tape from CNC Music Factory. Do you remember this band? <laughs> yeah. This group? Oh, yeah. CNC Music Factory. There was an instrumental on side B. <laughs> and I wrote my own lyrics, my own song to that instrumental. And I recorded my voice with it onto another cassette. And I took that cassette to Skate America. And on Friday night, where we would all go roller skating on oh, Friday night. Oh, my God. I love it. Wow. I I got them to play the cassette, so I got to hear my first recorded sort of jam at the skate rink. And because it was already CNC Music Factory, nobody really noticed. They just kept skating, you know. <laughs> but it was my voice on the track, and it was eighth grade, and that was a real just moment for me. I was like, yeah. Oh yeah, this is I, I could do this. I want to do more of this. That's amazing. I love that CNC Music Factory of all of all the artists had an instrumental track. <laughs> yeah. I can just think, gonna make you sweat, right? Isn't that their song? Yes. Of course, they're the ones they had an instrumental <laughs> and Jason Mraz is writing his first song to that. Of course, that makes sense. It is amazing what you just said about when you sit down and you create something and it's kind of part improvising. And there's a line in, uh, in the Broadway musical of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and he says, Willy Wonka says, Charlie, you know what we both do? You and I, we make something out of nothing. And I think about how much you've made. And it's like how many songs just keep coming out of you. I'm, it's it, magic. It, it is magic. It is absolutely magic. And I've been through waves in my life where I think that's got to be it. There can't be any more that flows through this tap. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and, yet, and yet through patience, through more adventure experience, just, or even just stopping and reading a book. The next time I go back to turn on that tap, more comes out of it. It's yeah. just this infinite resource. And all it is, is the same 12 notes on an octave yeah. and, and the same 26 letters in, in our alphabet. It's incredible. Just rearranged in new ways. Yeah. It's absolutely magical. Yeah. And your, your ability to create melody is, it's just off the chart. And it's also you, because I heard Carol King say a long time ago that songwriting is just having something to say, really having something to say. And there's this unrelenting goodness inside of you. And it's kind of like, it feels as though 
you constantly feel the need to share that goodness. It's like, it doesn't let you sleep. Does it feel like that? Like you want that out in the world? Yes. And I'm sure there's both good reasons and bad reasons for that. Mm. Um, The good reason is I want to use my superpowers for good. Yeah. I've been given the greatest wealth, which is people's time and attention. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to give me that time and attention, what am I going to do with it? How am I going to respect that time and attention? How am I going to inspire them in that few minutes of their time and attention? Or how am I going to acknowledge them and just try to relate to them in that time? Um, So I've learned through the years to truly respect that time and attention and want to be good and want to be better when I'm given that spotlight. Mm -hmm. And if I go all the way back to early in my career, when my songs didn't make as much sense or they weren't as clear on the goodness, it was, even if all the words weren't fully there, it was some version of, I want this to be good. I want this to sound pretty. I don't have all the words yet, but I'm going to make some noise right now that I need to make. And this is what I said a few seconds ago that for probably good and bad reasons, the good being I value the listener and the bad reasons is, and it's not bad. I just needed to have a contrast of light and dark here, but the bad is being um, going all the way back to my divorced parents at five years old Mm -hmm. and from five years old, I had a suitcase packed. And on the weekends, I would go to my dad's and I'd stay with my dad. And on the weekdays, I'd go back to my mom's. And so from five years old, I learned how to be a touring artist. I learned how to pack a suitcase and hit the road. And in that in-between, when you have two very loving and hardworking parents, there's also the sort of, no fault of theirs, but there's this ability to kind of get lost between the two households, to kind of not feel fully seen, to not feel fully heard. And you also have siblings, add the siblings to the formula, and we're all competing for our parents' attention. We're all competing for our family's attention and for each other's attention. And so I think that gets woven into the fabric of the instrument of my being. Yeah. And when I show up to sing, it still connects to that version of look at me, listen to me. I think that's why what Carol King says, you you have something to say. Mm -hmm. And so for those sort of dark and almost sad reasons, there's this human child in me that was like, I just want to be seen and I, and I've got to make noise to say it. And when I'm in my 20s, I'm, I'm kind of doing that same thing. In my early 20s, I'm, I'm writing all kinds of weird poetry that maybe doesn't fully make sense, but I'm certainly trying to bring it together yeah. to mimic maybe some of my poetic heroes or to just start being more of a jazz artist with my singer-songwriter style. But over time, I've felt like I've really tried to fine-tune how I how I use all of that. Mm-hmm. How I, and, and I know I'm not final. I know I've got a long way to go. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And so often I feel like people's pain turns into their purpose. You know, yeah. if, that, if that hadn't been the beginning of your story, yeah, maybe you would have been, uh, you know, a barista and you'd be fine. 
but there's this That's feeling right. of like, I got to get this out and thank God, because how many lives have you touched? I mean, it's unbelievable to wrap your head around how many lives you've touched, how many people used your song when they proposed to their love of their life, how many people listen to your music when they're feeling down, how many people drove with you cross country. Like you are literally that little kid with that little suitcase. And it like kills me to think of that image and how sensitive of a soul you are. So you were picking up on everyone's feelings. So you were holding it. I could probably guess. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot mm -hmm. for a little kid to feel all of that. But look, mm -hmm. look what that's done for millions and millions and millions. And so you went to San Diego and you started playing in the coffee shop scene. And what's the story? Like, how does that first thing come together? So I'd say senior year in high school and my first year in college, which I went to a musical theater college in New York City. Yep. I started playing guitar and that was where my magic talent on piano, which I really wasn't that gifted, but I could make things up. I could make up songs. Mm -hmm. It really started to blossom on the guitar. So I put the guitar first when I was about freshman in college. And I basically dropped out of college at that same time, mentally mm -hmm. dropped out of college. It's yeah. like I'm spiritually disconnected from college now. I'm going to play this guitar. Yeah. And, I, and my roommate in college, my roommate actually said to me, dude, you should just be a rock star. He's like, that's <laughs> all you need to do. Just quit school, go write your songs and be a rock star. No big deal. No big deal. And in a way, I kind of took him up on that. I, yeah, I took sure advice. you did. I dropped out of school. <laughs> I focused on music. I was in New York City at the time, so I moved back to Virginia where I'm from. And I spent about three or four years with my head down, just taking odd jobs working on guitar and working on songs, like giving myself the time I needed to grow without putting myself in front of audiences and, and basically without trying to talk myself out of it. Cause I yeah. knew if anytime I ran into somebody from high school and they're like, Oh, what are you doing back in town? I was like, Oh, I'm working on my music. They would look at me weird. Like, Oh yeah, your music. Good luck with that. Oh, boy. And yep. I never wanted to be discouraged. I believed in myself. I said, you know, it just is going to take some time. So after about four years of that, I decided to take a trip to California for adventure, for inspiration, just to see a completely different world. I'd never been to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So I drove out to the West Coast. It was meant to be a short trip, and I never left. I thought, this is incredible out here. The weather's incredible. The geography and the topography of the land is so different than the East Coast. There's fruit trees. There's just a whole different biodiversity out here that was really yeah. stimulating for me as a writer. And I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And so not a single person could tell me I was doing the wrong thing with my life. And I loved that. Yeah. So finally, you know, that little kid with the suitcase was free to make his own home however yeah. he could. And I was staying with friends who had friends who had friends that turned me on to some interested individuals. I was living in San Francisco with an ex-girlfriend who was, continues to be a friend of mine. And her boyfriend, her new boyfriend, had friends in the music industry mm -hmm. and said, hey, we're going to go to a party in Vegas. I want you to bring your guitar because we never know who we're going to see. So I went to this Vegas party and I took my guitar and I was playing in a hotel room and 
I didn't know it that at the time, but in the room that night would be my future manager and my future booking agent. No way. And no. They saw, oh yeah, so they <laughs> saw me playing and just entertaining people. And the next day, one of them approached me and said, who are you? What are you doing? I was like, well, I don't really know. I'm just kind of, I just moved to California looking for opportunities. And they directed me to San Diego. They said, well, hey, San Diego has a cool music scene. We have some friends that have studios there. Would you be interested in going down there and checking that out? I said, sure, why not? I'm on an adventure. Yep. So I went to San Diego. I recorded a couple of songs at a guy's house. And we quickly realized I don't have any experience. I'd been living quietly in Virginia with no mm-hmm. real communication to the outside world, not yeah. playing shows, not, not really recording. And I basically got a big reality check of like, yeah, I can kind of sing, but my songs aren't really there. And I don't really know what I'm doing. I got to, I got to hone it in. Yeah. So I stayed in San Diego and because I got introduced to the coffee shop music scene there. Mm -hmm. And in that coffee shop music scene were A.J. Croce, the son of Jim Croce, Mm -hmm. um, Gregory Page, phenomenal songwriter, Steve Poltz. Jeff Berkeley, Lisa Sanders, there was Carlos Almeida. There was this large cast of amazing songwriters and an audience for songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it because it wasn't your typical nightclubs. It wasn't your rock and roll bars. It was all ages. It was coffee shops. It was listening rooms. Yeah. And it was people like me telling stories through songs. Mm-hmm. And so... I became a devotee of these songwriters and I started hanging out at these coffee shops and eventually I was working at the coffee shops, Mm -hmm. (laughs) running the door, running sound until finally the owners really trusted me and believed in me enough to let me have my own time on Mm -hmm. stage. Mm -hmm. And it took about a year and a half to really earn their trust by working the open mic nights and the songwriter nights and just showing up, just constantly showing up. But by the time they gave me my own night, I started to have a little audience that was into what I was up to. Mm-hmm. And that was really my first big break, I think, was getting wow. my own little spot at the coffee shop because I grew from that point. I grew fast. I was selling out my Thursday nights at Java Joe's, the coffee shop there. <laughs> and I started re- recording my shows and putting my shows, my songs on the radio in San Diego and this was all thanks to that gentleman's in the, the Las Vegas hotel yeah. room who had kept an eye on me through all those years. And when I was finally ready and I'd gotten my show and my act together, I went back to them and said, okay, I think I'm ready. We started to, you know, send my songs to the local San Diego radio station. And then eventually Electra recording company got a, got hold of some of my demos and wow. said, Hey, would you want to make an actual studio record? And, Oh and it just kind of grew from there. And uh, it's been a series of small big breaks. And and those are kind of the external breaks of the, of the other people in your life who come sure. in to help champion your career. Yeah. And for me, the personal big breaks still happen on the page. They still happen on the stage. Oh, yeah. It takes showing up and writing something that's like, ooh, this is going to add so much fire to my show. And also being able to have the improvisation or the storytelling on the live show is also going to add some fire to the show. 
Yep. That continually put fuel in my show and, and gave me some energy to keep going and keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really nice big break right before my first album came out, um, which I was playing in a parking lot at a Dave Matthews show in uh, at the Gorge in Washington. Uh-huh. It's a really cool venue. We were given this gig in the parking lot. Yeah. Three days. We spent the first day just setting up the gear. We never got a sound made. I think we played one song. Mm. And I said to the crowd who was all waiting to go into the amphitheater, I said, well, that's all the time we have. <laughs> and a guy in the crowd yells back, thank God. Oh, and it was humiliating. Awesome. Yeah. Humiliating. So oh. the next day we got set up and we're playing and it's an okay mixed crowd. It's They're watching us, but they're really just there to go in and see Dave Matthews. Well, then Dave Matthews comes out. He comes out and he gets up on our stage with us. And he basically, just by him being there, gives us this endorsement of, hey, these guys are cool. Mm -hmm. Put your attention over here. Give them some love. He took my guitar. He played some songs. And, of course, this is my hero. And a picture of it, of that moment, ended up in Rolling Stone magazine. And they put the headline on that picture was Dave's new fave. Mm. And I don't know if that was true or not, but it gave me a kind of validation that that was national. It was a national Mm. validation. Whereas prior to that, I was really just this little San Diego regional kid. Yeah. You know, so that was probably Uh my biggest, I would say, biggest break was having that notoriety from Dave Matthews and Rolling Stone. And then my album came out about a week later and it did pretty well. People kind of started to pick up on what I was up to. And then I followed that up with just years and years of touring to just stay present. Um, It's been hard work, but it's been my dream job. You know, I I wanted to be in the circus. I wanted to be (laughs) an entertainer. I wanted to sing songs. I wanted to say something. And I, I learned how to get into that world where I can create all of those opportunities. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I don't know why, but I, it brought tears to my eyes. And I actually cried when you just told that story about that headline, because all those years when you didn't know that was coming and you were just working at the coffee shop, trying to prove yourself, like that took so much courage. So many people give up right then because they don't know what's promised. They don't know what's coming and you have to be willing to put in that time and play those shows and care enough about the six people at the coffee shop who are listening and keep going back. And you did all of that and then continue to like, I think people think that as soon as you get a record deal, you know, it it takes care of itself forever. It's not true. It's like, it's constant. There's no arrival. And to be able to be swimming in this world and staying so true to your genuine soul and working this hard, it's so unusual that you've done everything you've done and, and stayed yourself. Like, what helps you stay grounded in that? How did you not get swept into all that noise? Mm. When I was in high school, I worked for my dad who ran fence companies, which means, you know, we dug holes and he built fences that kept dogs in, that surrounded tennis courts, that were picket fences or privacy fences around people's yards. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful craftsmanship, but hard labor. 
and and for a while I was his only employee and it was really hard. And I look over and see my dad digging holes and I mean, he did it for 30 some years oh before gosh. he became a mailman and he switched to the post office to get the better benefits. And because in the fence business in the wintertime, it's hard to get the work. And I would sing on the job and my dad mm-hmm. would do the typical parent thing and say, son, go do that. Go do what you love. And if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. And so my dad was always a champion for my career and following my music because he saw that I loved it and I had a talent for it. Mm. So in a way, that was my goal. When I quit college shortly thereafter and I started focusing on just my music, I worked as a janitor. I worked for the post office because my dad got me a gig there. Um, I worked at a tobacco shop. I worked a lot of different odd jobs all knowing that one day I'm going to be a musician and I'm not going to have this traditional day job. When I got to the coffee shops three, four years later, and I'm working in the coffee shop playing music a couple of nights a week, I had made it. That to me was the finish line. I Mm. said, Oh my God, I don't have a day job. This is my gig. Yeah. All I have to do now is book enough gigs to to pay my bills. Yeah. And so I would work two, three, four coffee shops a week until I was really doing enough business at one or two coffee shops only wow. that I didn't have to bounce around the city so much, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't Madison Square Garden or anything like that. That didn't matter. What mattered to me was me and music, we are we are intimately Thriving, we're intimately connected. We are doing what we were meant to do, and I didn't have any expectation or even dream beyond that coffee shop stage. I never did. Everything that's happened since then has been this freak bonus <laughs> to the dream. Yeah, it really has, and I think that that is credit to those influencers I met in that Vegas hotel room. Bill Silva and Marty Diamond. Bill Silva became my manager and he managed me for 18 years. Mm -hmm. And Marty Diamond was my booking agent for just as long. And these guys, once I was really established in the coffee shop, they were able to take that and help me take that to the next level. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I was already where I wanted to be. I never needed to go any further because the music is the reward and being challenged to, to write new songs for the stage, that's, that's the work. Mm-hmm. And having something to say that's meaningful, that's the work. The getting around from city to city and touring and the venues getting bigger and all that, that's the music business basically just going bananas. And that's managers and agents and lawyers doing all of that stuff. Yeah. That wasn't really who I am. Yeah. So. I was able to still go through that and go through those motions and play all those different venues because really they were no different than the coffee shops. I didn't have to believe anything different about myself to play Royal Albert Hall versus Java Joe's coffee shop. I just had to still do the work, be a great performer, write good songs, etc. And in the back of my mind, I always thought all of this could go away one day. I've seen careers rise and fall. I'm not going to believe that I'm supposed to be in these big, big, big venues my whole life because at any point it could go away and I'm going to have to go back to that coffee shop. 
And I actually never stopped going to those coffee shops. So when mm. the when the tour would end, I would go back to those coffee shops and keep playing my coffee shop shows. Yeah. Or when I had new music that I was working on, I'd go to the coffee shop first and I'd test the songs out there. Yeah. So that really helped me not change mm. because the real church, the real garden of songwriting and, and entertaining for me was the little coffee shop. That was really where the small audience doesn't have room for your big ego. You know, they want to hear the song. They want to see who you are. And I think that really helped me stay who I am and and respect the other songwriters in this region. And, you know, I, I love that your podcast is about quit your day job because me being married to music is the greatest day job I could ever have. Yeah. That's the gift. So whether when I was working for the post office in these awful hours at like four in the morning to noon, mm, um, there wasn't great, but the rest of my time from noon, one o'clock on to the evening was me and music. And it was everything. And I thought one of these days, if I can just eliminate those agonizing hours of working for somebody else, I'll have more time to spend with my muse. But I also had to respect that I needed a paycheck and I needed something to at least get me to that next level. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I took a class at at UCLA. They have this Mindful Awareness Research Center. I took a couple of years of classes there and there was a whole study they did on how people attach their happiness to outcomes. And so they've done these studies where they find that the day after someone wins an Oscar or a Grammy, they were like depressed. It's because it didn't necessarily make them any happier. But when you're happy because you just want to make the thing, like when making the thing is what makes you happy, you're rich, you're there. And Mm. like, I Mm. believe you so totally when you say working in those coffee shops and getting to, you know, just sing and play those sets and that's how I paid my rent. You're like, I was so satisfied. That's it. You're one of the very few people that... You are, you've been so rich the whole time because you just have yeah. to be here. Awesome. Yeah. My roommate and I used to say that like early on in the early coffee shop days when we really only had enough money just to live, like no going to the movies, no going out to eat. We just had enough. We would still say we're the richest poor people we know Yeah, because we still had a great quality of life. You know, we were still showing up at the shows and playing and entertaining and entertaining ourselves, even when there was no audience around. And you can put the guitar or the instrument on your lap or your craft, whatever it is that it is your dream. If you can sit and be with that dream, be doing the action of that dream, that's it. You might as well be swimming like Scrooge McDuck in his big ball of gold (laughs) coin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Let me ask you this. So I feel like they've done studies to find out that the the greatest regret of the dying is that they feel they didn't live life on their terms. You know, they didn't do those things that they really want to do. And I think because so many people are so thirsty to, to feel like themselves and to recognize themselves when they look in the mirror and they spend most of their time so distracted from like, wait, is this who I am? I was told, get a job, get a 401k. And I'm like miserable. And I have this thing I've always wanted to do. But what happens after I've talked to so many people listening, there's this courage that they feel it's a courage problem. It's like, I don't want to put my work out because I'm worried that like, 
it's not great. I compare myself to Ed Sheeran and Jason Mraz. Who the hell am I to write a song? I compare myself to all these other authors. Who am I to write a book? Who am I to sew something? What do you say to those people who compare themselves, who are not even willing to make anything unless it's perfect? They don't want to be mediocre. They're terrified to take a stage at an open mic. It's like, I think that that's the number one thing I see standing in people's way is this need to be perfect or they're not going to do it at all. I mean, in the beginning, you weren't writing. Every song wasn't your number one single and you still wrote them and performed them. And how did you give yourself the grace to, to work things out? Yeah, I was almost so naive to think that this was going to work out. Like, <laughs> in a way, I guess there was an arrogance to like, but what I do is different. Like, yes, I still emulate my heroes. I still have a style that sounds like this or this or this that already exists in the world, but it's still my own version of it. But what I have come to learn and appreciate later in life, which I didn't have at the beginning, at the beginning, I think I just had sort of naive arrogance, as well as I didn't want to be my dad. I didn't want to work digging holes my whole life. I didn't want to have the day job. So there was that too. What I have discovered later in life is that my life experience, how I experience life is going to be the culmination of many things. They're all, it's going to be the sort of the convergence of my thoughts, my speech, my beliefs, my actions, and my attitude, right? And these are five sort of five different lanes. And it's important to know that our thoughts and our speech are in alignment with our beliefs, right? Or that our actions yeah. are in alignment with our speech. Um, like there's the, these five different things we're juggling. And so if we can get them all on the same page, our thoughts, speech, beliefs, actions, and attitudes, if we can get them all on the same page, then we can just flow in our life experience. We can just sort of really own it, Right. And what I have found is when I'm living my dream, when I'm working on a song, writing the song or performing a song Mm -hmm. or recording a song, something to do with music. But when I'm really working on something to do with music, all of those five things are lined up. And my life experience is at its fullest. It's at its most potent. And if I'm not doing music, if I'm working for somebody else or if I'm doing somebody a favor, I might have four out of five of those things in alignment, but maybe my attitude's a little off because I'm not really living my dream. So what I have found that is if I live my dream, it actually better serves my soul, my purpose, and it serves others. It serves everybody around me because my attitude's going to be better and I'm going to be a more pleasant person for everybody else. So for someone that doesn't, I guess, have the courage or the experience yet I just tell them, just don't worry about what other people think. You know, it's none of your business what people think of you. You cannot ever control that. Like, I'll never know who likes my songs and who doesn't like my songs. But that's really not part of my life experience. My life experience is going to be my own thoughts. I love the song. I love the process. My own speech, like what am I saying on a day-to-day basis about myself or my music or what am I saying in my music? You know, my beliefs and my belief systems are far and wide and they're always changing. Like 
my beliefs on spirit, my beliefs on politics, my beliefs on myself, my beliefs on relationship, my beliefs are always changing. So using music as a way for me to understand or using my dream or my art form as a way to, to always understand how my beliefs are evolving. Wow. My actions, clearly when I'm creating my music, my actions are definitely being used because I have to play piano, I have to play guitar, I have to learn how to use my technologies. I have to show up at my desk and really demonstrate the act of being with my the time that it takes to write a song. Um, and then my attitude has to be, you know, grateful and, and sharp and positive yeah. and all those things. So I guess I encourage people who are nervous and don't have the confidence to forget everyone else and just be your biggest fan and go in deep, enjoy the romance of discovering it, of discovering yourself, yeah. enjoy the romance of the challenges and the struggles and knowing that you're adding your pain and tears and hours and sweat and word to the pantheon of poets and writers that have come before you. But I, I do believe that this can be applied to anyone pursuing a dream is you just yeah. got to reward yourself by forgetting what you think the world thinks, because yeah. you'll never know that that's an impossible task. Yeah. And you know, enjoy the ride, enjoy the journey, enjoy the pain, enjoy, enjoy seeing your cluttered desk or your cluttered kitchen. Yeah. That is only the result <laughs> of making something great out of nothing. You know, yeah. um, I was just doing a project. Like I love having a clean desk because it sort of sets me up for my next thing. Mm -hmm. But I was just doing a project the other day when I, I walked into my office and it was just destroyed. Like, because I kept running in to grab this or grab that and blah, 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 I grab this. Or I need this instrument and I need this cable and I got to open this and fix this. And it, the room was just in disarray. And I took a moment to appreciate it because I was like, oh yeah, this only happens when I'm making something really big. Yep. And it was, it was just really a fulfilling moment. And then last night I had this fulfilling moment of cleaning it up. You know, <laughs> just like I'm going to tidy this up and I'm going to get it ready. And when I came back yeah. in today, we're having this conversation. I'm, I'm really pleased. I'm like, now I'm ready for my next one. So yeah. there's all these little beautiful things that come with living your dream that you don't expect. Um, yeah. All the preparation, the cleaning of your tools, you know, like yeah. washing your dishes. And there's all these beautiful steps in it that keep unfolding the, the deeper you dive into your dream. You're, yeah. you're not going to be bored and you're not going to be broke. Your dream is going to give you so much, <laughs> give you so many tasks, and it's going to give you so much return that it's so worth trying. Yeah. So worth trying. Oh my God. So many amazing gems in what you just said about, mm. and, and in this time during COVID, it's interesting how we keep talking about like essential business, what's essential. And I feel like people are getting this great big pause right now, which in some ways is an opportunity to say, what is really essentially me? Like, what do I want to go back to? What do I not want to go back to? What maybe do I do when I have free time that maybe really needs to be born. And I mean, little did you probably know that this album you wrote called Look for the Good would come out in this moment. And how do you feel about 
saying something like that in the midst of so much that's going on for people, how can we look for the good when we feel, oh my gosh, this is all so bad. There's so much darkness right now. People are losing their jobs. Yeah. People are, you know, what, what are your thoughts around it? Because it seems like it's uncanny that this is coming out right now. It's so needed. Yeah. Well, I was already feeling that we were already spinning out in a weird, devastating direction. I mean, the last, this whole administration, it's very different than previous generations Mm -hmm. or administrations. And not everyone is being treated equally and fairly. So I already was approaching this album from something is way off here. And we have a long way to go on equality. We have a long way to go on planetary sustainability and regeneration. Yeah. So how can we still look for the good in these dark times? I did not expect it to get darker as yeah. it has. Yeah. But people were already losing their jobs. People were already getting sick. People were already being brutalized by the police. Like there was already a lot of darkness in the world. So Look for the Good, that whole album was, was in a way, was sort of my personal response to, okay, the world is a challenging place. The, the surface of the earth is a volatile, dangerous environment. We are lucky to be here at this remarkable stroke of good weather because the history of the planet has shown the earth to look like a snowball at least six times. Oh yeah. So who's to say that couldn't happen again? So the environment is crazy. We also have humanity just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and struggling to sort of know itself and to share the surface of the earth. So regardless of COVID, earth itself and being human on earth, is it's tough. Yeah. And I go to my dream, I go to my music as my solace, as my little space. And I breathe life into these songs to help me try to understand the world and I, the way maybe a bird does. I don't know what the bird is thinking, but the bird sits on its <laughs> little tree outside my studio and it sings its songs. And it's like, yeah. to me, it looks as if the bird's got it made. You know, the bird's like singing his little song <laughs> and he's sitting in a tree. Little do we know the bird is running from my cat. And little do we know the bird is trying to hide from the bigger birds because the hawks out here will eat little birds. Yeah. You know, everybody's got something creeping up on them that could take them out at any moment. And that thing is time. Time is creeping up on all of us. So, so I write songs that try to help us not think about those things too much, but appreciate those things. Look for the good, you know, like... We could say we're all going to die. That's not really looking for the good. No. (laughs) Instead, we can say, hey, let's take a deep breath together. You feel that? Life. That's life. You just breathe life in. What can I do with these next breaths? We're only given a limited number of these breaths. So we got to catch as many as we can. And music is such a great medium to catch breaths. Because if we sing along with music, then we're breathing consciously with that music. We're breathing a lyric and a thought and a belief and an action. And maybe even it changes our attitude. You know, it's, we're back to that whole life experience thing. Music is such a potent thing. So, you know, I'm writing this look for the good album 
to try to hopefully influence our breathing and influence our actions and our attitudes. And I should also just backtrack for a second and say, I still am never going to know who's going to listen to this and who is going to really breathe consciously and have their life changed by the music. I don't know. I have to maybe assume a hundred people max. I don't think that many people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not up to me to decide. It's really not up to me to decide. But what I'm getting out of the process, and I think this is what your podcast is about, is because I write this album, then I've taken care of all of these months of my life living my dream, taking care of myself, living my dream. I don't know what the future holds, really. But for me, the future holds writing another batch of songs, writing to be comfortable in a very volatile life. Mm. because the surface of the earth is dangerous. Humanity can be dangerous. But as long as I'm working on my dream, I don't get overwhelmed by those things. Yeah. And I can breathe life into something that's positive and, and loving and kind. And, and I turn to Mr. Rogers as a resource, yes. as an inspiration. Yes. I look at how he lived his life. But I looked at him because in the last couple of years, I've really come to see he was like a Dalai Lama of our culture in his goodness, of his kindness, in his ministry. But he never put on the the minister's clothes. You know, he did it through entertainment. He did it through television. Yeah. And he had a saying, or it came out of an interview when a child asked him, what do I do when I see bad stuff on the news? Yeah. And Mr. Rogers said, well, look for the heroes. You know, don't look at the bad part of that story. Look yeah. at the good part of that story. Yeah. You know, that there's a, there are courageous men and women that are going to go and, and fight the bad guys or they're going to fight the forest fires yeah. or they're going to help clean up after a flood. Yeah. So we can look for the good. And so I'm not trying to be naive in my work and say nothing's wrong. I'm trying to say something is still okay. We're still okay. You know, despite the fact that there's a lot that's scary out there. Yeah. This is a really challenging topic to talk about. I like it, but because I write about this, this is what gives me comfort in my life. Yeah. You know, throughout my career, I I feel like occasionally I would be criticized for just trying to write these sunny songs and as if nothing in the world is wrong. But I, I know a lot about the world is is suffering in life. There will always be suffering. But if I sit down and work on my dream, if I sit down and work on my craft, then I can take care of the suffering in my heart. And then if I do that and it works for me and I have a transformation and I feel somewhat healed by it and the words are powerful, then I have to think, okay, maybe somebody else will get a similar transformation and or encouragement from this work. So I'm going to put this work out there and just see what happens. It's, yeah. L- listening to you talk is music. It's like a symphony. I don't know how you choose your words, how you can tell that you're saying these things in this moment. You are so connected and it is like Mr. Rogers. I saw that movie on my birthday a couple of years ago and it was like a religious experience. Like listening to you oh. right before you said that, I was like, you're like that. You're like such a teacher, a preacher, a rabbi, a guru. Like you have such 
wisdom. And it's, it comes from, it's my grandma used to say, she used to say, it's so easy to find the bad. You have to look for the good and you do such a good job of it. I want to ask you one more question because I'm dying to know. You've done so many amazing, cool, special, sparkly things, but what was it like for you to be on Broadway in Waitress? What was that like? I think I was scared for two or three days. Yeah. Not, not, (laughs) Not at Broadway, but but probably packing my suitcase and getting ready to move to New York right. for a few months. Right. Because I was thinking, oh, man, they're counting on me to show up every day and be great. And I had only worked for myself for the past two decades. Right, practically. right. <laughs> and so I was scared, yeah, for a couple of days. And then once I got there, they gave me about three weeks of rehearsals. Mm-hmm. A very intense rehearsals. Like, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Oh let's do it again. Let's do it again. Oh so, my God. by the time you take the stage, you know it backwards and forwards. You know it inside and out. So, I wasn't nervous by the time it started. And in fact, I quickly, very quickly, fell in love with it and uh, thought, oh, nice. I could do this for a long time. Mm. And this is props to Sarah and Jesse Nelson who wrote the, the script. But it was a funny show. It was a lovely show. It was a romantic show. It was an authentic show. Um, there was so much goodness to this show. And and everything that my character did was clumsy and beautiful and it got laughs and was really sweet. So I loved my character. I got to really connect with my character. And I didn't have to tour during that period. I just had to take a subway back and forth. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the feeling of being able to walk into one of those stage doors. You remember, uh, I went to musical theater college. Yeah, and, and yeah. When I was 18, I lived in New York City, and I would go down to the theater district. And wow. I learned that at intermission, everybody comes out and smokes cigarettes. And then they all flood back in the theater. Well, we would go down and we'd smoke cigarettes at intermission. And then we'd, we'd walk into the theater and we'd watch act two yeah. for free. And it was a neat little thing. And we'd stay after and see the stage door. I did idolize Broadway for a moment when I was about 18. So to do that at 40 years old was a dream come true. It honestly, it felt like a vacation. Because oh my, my real life, living my dream is hard work. I show up, I work, I plan the tours, I write songs, I have to figure out what my show purpose is. Yeah. But when I'm doing Broadway, I'm doing somebody else's dream. I'm living somebody else's story. But I actually loved it. It was a nice break from what I normally do. So I oh would do it again. God. If the character was right, if the story was right. I would definitely do it again. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for that Mr. Rogers musical. Yeah, that'd be so yeah. perfect for you. Oh my God, I love that you're like, it was like a vacation, like being a star in a Broadway show. And I love that you went to AMDA, left, dropped out, and then you, you don't even audition. You get asked. You're like, hey, Jason, do you want to play this part? Sure. You know, it's like exactly. you cut the line. You just get asked to play the part. Um, of course you do. You know what? And I even said that I moved out of New York when I was 19. I actually left on my birthday, my 19th birthday, and I drove back to Virginia. And part of me felt like a failure because I was giving up on this dream of being a musical theater actor or a musician on that path. Yeah. 
And it felt like a failure. But in the back of my mind, I also said, you know what? I'm going to come back to New York (laughs) and I'll go back when they want me there. (laughs) And it worked. You know, 21 years later, I went back because they wanted me there. Yep. Yeah, that's what New York musical theater kids should hear. Go be a rock star, and then you'll just be offered a part. That's the better way. Don't stand in line and audition. Just become famous and amazing, and you'll be asked. Um, You are beyond, beyond, beyond. There's no word for you except for sweet and generous and awesome. And thank you a million times for sharing this space with me. I, I can't even put into words what it was like to just get to be with you tell us where we can find the record tell us where we can find you i mean it's pretty obvious <laughs> yeah you'll find look for the good on apple music and i've tried to get the music out now everywhere music is heard and i'm still a fan of collecting records so you can order a vinyl through jasonmoraz.com and listen to the new reggae album side a and side b on your record player as well so it's everywhere, I hope. And thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No problem. Thank you for being so gracious. And uh, we'll, we're going to spread the word and, and buy that album when it comes out. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's really lovely talking to you today. I, I got a lot out of this. Wow. It's such an honor to have him here. Such a treat. Here are the takeaways. Number one, use your superpowers for good. You've been given the greatest wealth of people's time and attention. What will you do to respect that attention and inspire, acknowledge, and relate to them? Number two, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Number three, if you can sit and do the action of that dream, then you've arrived. Number four, don't worry about what other people think. Be your biggest fan. Go in deep and enjoy the romance of discovering yourself, the challenges and the struggles. Enjoy the ride. Number five, embrace all the beautiful steps that keep unfolding as you dive into your dream. Number six, take a deep breath and breathe life in. We're only going to get a limited number of breaths. Catch as many as you can and make the most of them. Number seven, you never know who could get encouragement from your work. So you have to put it out there and see what happens. And number eight, look at the good part of the story. Look at the good heroes. Look for the good. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I am completely clear that you have a zillion things you could be doing with your time. And it means the world because your time is your greatest resource. It means the world that you spend your time here. So thanks for being here. If you want to hear more incredible conversations like this, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because we have awesome guests coming up and it's free to subscribe and I don't want you to miss out. Also, if you loved this episode, and I can't imagine how you couldn't love Jason Mraz, but if you loved this, take a second right now and think to yourself, is there somebody who would be inspired by this? And go ahead and share the link with someone or post it on your Instagram and tag me and tag Jason and we can reshare whatever you post. Thank you guys so much. I love you. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you on Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. So many times I chose to run. So many times I held my tongue. I held my tongue. Never saying what I needed to. But now